Okay, well, welcome to the London School of Economics. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the reader in political sociology here at the LSC, and it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce our event. Um, the event's been organised um, principally by the new Centre for Labour and Social Studies, but also in association with the LSC's British Politics and Policy blog, um, which, I believe, is now the top-ranked blog uh, for academic blogs. So if you're interested in reasoned debate, um, then it's something to go and have a look at. I mean, it actually is a very, very uh, interesting use of this medium, unlike so many others. The, the Centre for Labour and Social Studies is, is a new think tank. Um, it's a trade union-supported think tank. And it's really an, an excellent initiative. It's an exciting initiative, and above all else, it's a sorely needed initiative. And what it aims to do is to inspire the trade union movement itself, to foster broad alliances um, in the country as a whole, and, of course, to influence the development of public policy and debate. And tonight, we're going to hear from some of the findings from the Centre's first big project, um, that's the Social State Project. Now, last December marked the 70th anniversary of the Beveridge Report, which, has, as you know, uh, helped to lay the foundations for the post-war welfare state here in Britain. And you might think that in the wake of the great financial crisis we've all lived through, that it seems like we're in a moment with certain similar potential, a period in which a huge... Shock has shaken and delegitimised the established political and economic order and opened the way for new possibilities. But in fact, under the current government, I think it's not uncontroversial. It's, con it's not controversial to say that things seem to have been moving in a different direction. So what we're going to hear tonight um, is a series of thoughts from speakers who've been giving serious thought to how we might chart an alternative course how we might seek not to retrench the welfare state that was built up in the wake of Beveridge, but to build a new social state. Now, um, we've got so many interesting speakers that we're going to have to keep a tight chip here, and so I apologise in advance that I'm going to have to be kind of disciplining you. Our speakers have been given ten minutes each, and, and you'll see that if they do that, um, we'll have time for contributions from the floor. So I'm going to just, after nine minutes, I'm going to sort of wave my finger, and that means say one or two more sentences and then stop. Um, so let me just, uh, in each case, I'll just introduce each speaker as, as they come. Our first speaker is, is Zoe Williams. Many of you will know her, of course. She's got a, a very uh, important voice in the Guardian newspaper, and she's also a, a prominent contributor in many other forums, in Newsnight and Channel 4 and so on. She uh, contributes to other journals as well, to uh, the New Statesman, and indeed, I'm told, she contributes in a ceaseless endeavour to smash patriarchy to Mary Claire and <laughs> Glamour. Um, she was the 2011 Columnist of the Year in a set of awards uh, that, on that year, and so it's a great pleasure to ask her to speak. She's going to introduce our topic in a general way. It's her think piece that uh, starts us off. Oh, yes, I am. I am going to do that. I'm actually not going to read or even pray see my think piece because obviously you've all already read it. Um, and um, instead, I thought I'd give some observations on the kind of um, environment that this conversation is coming into because especially you really notice at The Guardian, even though I know a lot of the comments below the line at The Guardian are just people who wouldn't be seen dead reading The Guardian piling in for a laugh, um, you nevertheless can see some differences in the conversation as it stands now 
um, to how it stood 10, 20, certainly 30 years ago, certainly 50 years ago. Just basic precepts that people really need explaining to them now, like what the point is of society. You get a lot of, why do I need to pay for your cancer treatment? I don't have cancer. You're like, you really have to go back to square one. Um, And that is something that I think we notice a lot, even in political debate, that there does seem to be a kind of hole where our understanding used to be that society wouldn't function and flourish unless we shared things. Um, So I get a lot of arguments made in the name of pragmatism. So you'll make an argument about, say, welfare or local authorities or, you know, anything, any given cut, and somebody will go, no more money, end of... Um, and, and that happens all the time now and if you, if you continue debate with that person you'll get Labour spent it all end of um, and there's a, there's a huge sense of kind of very finite resource it's, it's a very kind of retrenched position that there's no way of getting any more money it's almost like we've got a euro head on without actually joining the euro there's no sense that we're in control of our own finances there's no sense that you can actually borrow to invest there's there's a there's a kind of very kind of off a cliff everybody's very depressed thrust to the narrative and i think the first the first i mean certainly this is the first project i've seen in a long time that tries to go from a different point of view that tries to kind of attack attack the issue from a more optimistic idealistic point of view um the trap that i think the whole conversation, whether that's in Westminster or in the media or elsewhere, has fallen into is, is going from, from a kind of very pragmatic, um, you know, we, we have got this money because we'll take it from there so we can just about afford to make sure that person doesn't starve. There's no kind of grand vision. Um, and what I think from the... If you, look at, if you look at the arguments we should be making now that we find difficult to make and then look at the way beverage made them, I think they find they fall into three broad categories. First, there are people who just don't understand the principle of a safety net. They can't imagine why you would be economically inactive. They'll say things like, well, why don't you just move? Why don't you just move to America? Why don't you just move to Canada? Why don't you just move cities? And there's a real sense of, of kind of... It sounds like mobility, but actually it's just rootlessness. Um, and this is something that Beveridge, I don't think, if you read it, he never struggled to explain why people would sometimes be unproductive. He never struggled to explain, he, ne- he never seemed to warrant explaining that families would spend periods of their life in poverty and periods of their ni- life not in poverty. And it never seemed to warrant explaining that if you lived somewhere and you, when you were out of a job you didn't necessarily want to move. Um, so I think something to kind of pull out of Beveridge which would really help us would be a sense of there being a purpose to society that wasn't, it wasn't eternally mobile. There being a purpose to, to making society better as it, as it stands. Um, and that's something I, think, I kind of blame the last government for, really, because the, all the talk was of mobility and none of the talk was of sufficiency. Everybody was constantly... As, if, as long as the waters were in perpetual progression, it didn't matter if somebody was at the bottom because they wouldn't always be the same person. That, I think, we should, we should really go at from the... Just take it apart at the seams and say, no, you want the bottom to be an acceptable way to live, regardless of whether the people at the bottom will eventually end up at the top. Um, more importantly than that, there's, there's a kind of huge cohort... I mean, there's a huge 
strain of the argument that doesn't understand any moral imperative of a safety net. And this is something I always find myself listening to religious people and feeling really jealous of them because they don't have to really explain it. They just say, well, th there it is. This isn't right. And especially outside um, Occupy in St Paul's, there were loads of preachers. I mean, nobody, no, they didn't get much attention. But there were lots of vic ordinary London vicars wandering in and out saying, well, Christ in the Gospels taught outrageous generosity. And you're standing there thinking, yeah, the left could really use some of this, but it's really difficult to know how you channel it. <laughs> um, that's another, that's something I think unions work just work in much better than anybody else. The kind of mainstream left doesn't seem <coughs> to be able to discuss outrageous generosity as a valuable thing. Um, the union movement does seem to be closer to understanding the moral precept of equality. Um, I don't know, somebody will probably disagree with me on that. <laughs> but nevertheless, it, it's something that we have to find from somewhere, whether we find it from a kind of 30s vision of, of equality or from a, from a religious vision of generosity or from a unionised vision of working together for some common purpose. Certainly, there's, it's a complete blind alley now, from my point of view, trying to have a conversation in which you pragmatically argue the case for equality. It's just, it just doesn't work because somebody will always come back with a reason why... Somebody will always come back with some kind of free market nonsense about how it, it, pragmatically you don't need equality, you can, you can work just as well with something else. So I think, you know, you could have that argument forever, but at some point you have to say, I don't care whether it's pragmatic, it's actually, it's right. Um, and that I would like to see much more of, and I think we can go back to beverage for that. Um, the third thing I notice is an incredibly bleak view of human nature, the state we're in, and... Um, the future, and this is not just, this actually I don't think is just to do with the financial crash it is to do with I think it's kind of, some of this narrative has come from the environmental movement a kind of sense of doom, a sense that, we, that we're just going off a cliff, we're just making things work until it all, until the lights go off, um, and that will, that will never really feed into a kind of to any kind of greater equality because there's no point if you're just separating out the scraps there will never be there, any enthusiasm for it and this kind of movement doesn't work without enthusiasm um, I wrote my column today about disability and I had and it was pegged to the um, judicial review coming to the um, I don't know why I'm smiling it's terrible <laughs> I'm smiling because I think they might win so there's a judicial review into the independence, independent living fund um, and if you just tot up how much disabled people, severely disabled people, have lost under this government, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's, it's something like they're 2% of the population, they're taking 15% of the cuts. They're, a lot of them have already lost their carers, so they, they had jobs before and now they're just sitting on an incontinence pad. One woman had to have a hysterectomy because they couldn't afford a carer to go and keep her hygienic. I mean, it's really, really extraordinary in humanity, but when you actually say, look, this really isn't going to work, this isn't going to work if you don't, you will still get people saying, well, the money's all gone, there's no more money. So I think the kind of poverty argument that this has to happen because otherwise people are going to live in poverty, that needs to move, move somewhere else. And that's another thing that I think these essays really work on, is a vision of something better rather than a stick to beat people with. Um, you know, you can say inequality is 
worse than it's ever been. The rich have totally screwed the poor. You can say the bankers ruined the country. You can say that all the problems have been caused by the um, bailing out of the banks. You can say all of these things, and you can win an argument on those grounds, but I don't think you can actually make, kind of change the vision for where we're going without making the optimistic argument, A, that an equal society would look better, B, that we can afford it, and C, that, you know, everything we cherish was founded on these principles. Thank you very much for that disciplined performance. <laughs> um, I, I, I quickly introduce our next speaker, who's uh, Howard Reed. He's got long experience as a, a person doing high-quality economic research. Indeed, he's a founder of Landman Economics. And before that, he was the chief economist um, at the IPPR think tank. Um, you might know that William Beveridge spoke of five giant evils, and one of those evils was idleness, and it's on that theme that Howard's going to speak to us. Thanks, Robin. Uh, well, um, the paper that I've written with uh, Richard Murphy of uh, Tax, Tax Research UK, um, who can't be here tonight, but um, sends his apologies, um, that is coming out very soon. It's not published yet. Um, but it's really, it's a paper of two halves, really, that kind of fit together. The first half, um, if you like, dissects the, uh, the, the notion that's kind of taken root very much in the UK and in Europe, that, that, that idleness... Uh, unemployment, inactivity of working age people, the idea that it's somehow um, the fault, always the fault of the person who's idle, that they're in that position, rather than a condition that's effectively imposed on them um, by the way the government chooses to structure the economy and chooses to structure the current welfare state. So what we're really trying to do in the first half of the paper is tackle the... Um, what Harjun Chang, the Cambridge economist, calls the myth of the lazy mob. The idea that there's this kind of uh, mob of people out there who are just scroungers, they can't, can't be bothered to get up in the morning. They've got their blinds drawn, according to George Osborne. Um, note they could be night shift workers. Osborne doesn't seem to really care about that. And, um, you know, um, he basically says, and the, the argument goes from the coalition government and their allies, that idleness is the fault of the unemployed for not trying hard enough. Um, we say that to the, to the largest extent is not the case, it's rather it's the fault of the, the government's austerity programme for failing to create enough employment to cut unemployment, which has come down a little bit, but it's still very high compared with both the pre-crash uh, total and certainly compared with the total in the 50s, 60s and even the 70s in the kind of full employment uh, era. Um, the, um, and what's more, although unemployment's come down a bit, underemployment is still really high. And in particular, we look at the number of people who are going into the labour market as very low-income, self-employed people, maybe working only a few hours a week, kind of struggling to, end, to make ends work. Those people will be much worse off under the new universal credit, by the way, because they'll have to meet a kind of minimum income condition equal to 30 hours at minimum wage, which will be very tough for many of them. And so the system is going to kind of kick them very much in the teeth. And there are a lot of part-time workers in the sort of new waves of employment that we're seeing. And a lot of people on low wage or even unwaged work, kind of, if you like, being forced into unpaid uh, positions, stacking shelves or whatever, um, by the, the work programme and similar things that the coalition government have come up with. So, so what we say is rather than 
kind of victimising um, unemployed people in that way. We need men to austerity and to press forward with uh, macroeconomic measures and micro measures such as infrastructure investment, um, including um, massive investment in social housing, which Duncan uh, is going to talk about in a minute, I'm sure. And fiscal policy measures, including increasing um, incomes of people on low incomes through the tax and benefit system, um, and basically measures to boost demand and boost employment. So a complete U-turn on the current economic strategy. So that's the first half of the paper, really, um, setting out an alternative approach that will um, end idleness by creating employment. Um, the second half of the paper addresses um, structural issues in the tax and benefit system, which in particular mean that people on low incomes at the moment, many of them see a very low return to um, their time spent in the labour market, and that's largely to do with the interaction of the income tax and national insurance system and the means-tested benefit and tax credit system. For example, people currently on the working tax credit but also paying income tax and national insurance contributions at the basic rate have got a marginal deduction rate of about 73%. 73 pence of every pound the person in that position earns um, goes straight back to HMRC, so they only get 27 pence. If you're on housing, uh, housing benefit and council tax benefit, your marginal reduction rate is over 90% uh, if, if you're on HB and CTB in addition to those other benefits. Universal credit will help a bit, but if you're on universal credit and the council tax support system, the less generous system which replaces council tax benefit, your marginal rate could still be well over 80%, depending on which council you live in, because it's going to be a localised system. So what we say is that marginal rates for people on low income should be um, a lot lower than that. But to do that, you have to completely restructure the benefit system. So what we propose is a, is a radical idea, but we felt it was, you know, this was a, a paper where we were pushing the boat out. So we haven't dotted all the I's and crossed the T's on this, but we've got the main costings and ideas work, working, worked out. What we propose is a kind of universal benefit payment to all families, which would be tax-free. It would be a kind of citizen's income, but it's based around family and it's set at the it would be set at the minimum income standard levels which are the um, the levels that uh, Joseph Roundtree Foundation funded research at Loughborough University to do some research on the minimum amount of money that families of different types and different sizes would need to actually participate fully in society so we basically say pay the MIS and I'll, I'll come to what we do about housing costs in a minute so this wouldn't include housing costs um, to everybody in the UK. Now you need a big increase in taxation to fund that but what we suggest doing is on the tax side, replacing the current income tax and national insurance contribution systems, including employer national insurance and self-employed, with what we call a unified income tax, which would be applied to all sources of um, earned and investment income. Um, and the, the, the overall, if you take the complete uh, personal incomes in the UK, you'd need a, a rate of all in, on all income that averaged 45%, but we're not, we're not proposing a 45% flat tax. It would start very low. You'd have a very small personal allowance. It wouldn't be as big as the current personal allowance, but you're getting minimum income standards. So you don't need something as big as the current personal allowance. It would then kind of go up to maybe 25 and then 45%, rising to, say, 65 or 70% at the, the top end. Now, 45% sounds a lot, but at the moment, if you're on basic rate tax and national insurance, and you take employer NICs into account as 
uh, as being incident on the worker, you're paying about 43, 44%. So it's around, it's around the, um, the same. Um, and then it would be higher at the, uh, at the top. And you would, have a, you would still have a means-tested housing benefit system on top of this because you can't afford to pay housing costs as well. The system would just kind of be, 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 be ludicrously expensive. But the idea is that the housing benefit payment will be structured so that nobody's, nobody's got a marginal rate if they're on housing benefit of more than about 60%, which is still fairly high, but it's much lower than universal credit. And local taxation would replace um, council tax with some kind of land value tax or something that's not, not instant on incomes in the same way. So you'd kind of get around the problem of, of withdrawal rates on um, on local tax like that. And also you would you would look to shift some of the burden of the income tax system to wealth, perhaps through bigger land value tax or other forms of wealth tax. So that 45% rate in the final system, we're going to do more work on this later in the year. In the final kind of proposal, it may be less than 45%. So that's the kind of basic idea. And that means that um, you've effectively got a much better return to work for people on low incomes than you have at the uh, at, at at the moment, and that's that's basically so. So the idea is to kind of get rid of poverty as well as um, tackling idleness. So I think is that have I got to ten minutes? Thirty seconds. That's within the margin of error. That is excellent indeed. Thank you, and it also gives me the chance to rectify something I should have done at the beginning because I was asked to to tell you all that if you are engaged in tweeting, you must use the following hashtag social state one word. Hashtag social state, one word. Um, and I believe if you wanted to send in questions, someone will deliver them to me in a more conventional fashion and I might um, pose them to the floor. So let me now introduce our third speaker, um, Kate Bell. Kate's the London Campaign Coordinator for the Child Poverty Action Group, which of course has a, a prominent role in public life. And prior to that, she was the director of the single, a director of the single parent charity, Gingerbread. And she's going to talk to us about another of the uh, giant evils, what? Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to talk about, um, yeah, beverages, giant evil of want, um, which we more commonly probably know of today as poverty. Um, I see how it's just abolished poverty for me, <laughs> so I might stop now. Um, but what I was going to do was really kind of talk a bit along the lines that Zoe was suggesting of kind of trying to move us from pessimism to optimism about the state of want in Britain today and what we might do about it. Um, I think we need to kind of face the fact that it is very easy to be pessimistic about the state of poverty in Britain today. We've got the reality of the statistics, so figures for 2010-11 show that 27% of children, 21% of all working adults and 14% of pensioners are poor. And we know that those figures are set to rise in the coming years. So, for example, the Institute for Fiscal Studies is telling us that um, poverty amongst children, for example, is going to increase by around 200,000 by 2015-16. What's more, we don't seem to have a kind of sense of public outrage about this. As I was saying, there's kind of an inevitability about it. Um, just to take one recent example, um, The Guardian was reporting on Monday that there's hardening attitudes amongst younger people to spending on Social Security. So they found that um, 48% of uh, 18 to 24-year-olds were disagreeing with a statement saying that most unemployed people receiving benefits were unlucky rather than lazy. So really suggesting that people are claiming benefits because they're out of work, because they're lazy. Um, and if you look at the long-running British Social Attitudes Survey, that's also showing kind of similar, similar hardening of attitudes. So... 
Today, more than half of British people think that unemployment benefits are too high, compared to just under a third when during the Thatcher government. But I am going to reason to argue that we've got three reasons to be cheerful when we think about poverty in the UK. Firstly, we know that poverty can be reduced. Secondly, we know more or less what reduces it. Um, and thirdly, it's possible that what would reduce poverty could also be politically popular. So firstly, we know poverty can be reduced. And actually, we know this from Britain in the last decade. If you compare those figures I just mentioned to um, back in kind of 97, 98, we've seen a million children lifted out of poverty and, pensioner and poverty among pensioners also fall by around a million. That's really impressive, and I think we need to actually talk about those achievements. We also know that children's outcomes during that fall in child poverty improved across a whole range of other areas, so educational outcomes, health outcomes were all going up. And if somebody tells you, well, poverty doesn't really matter, you need to point them to those statistics and say, well, what do you think was going on during that period? We also know, of course, if we look internationally, that lots of other Western democracies have got much lower child poverty rates than ours. Um, it's typical at this point to say Sweden, so I will say Sweden, but also you can look at um, Cyprus, Slovenia, the Netherlands, all have much lower child poverty rates than ours, and so of course to Germany and France. So it's not just a case of saying, oh, Scandinavia does it, why can't we? <coughs> Secondly, we do actually know how to reduce child poverty. Um, UNICEF say that you get the child poverty level you pay for, and basically reducing poverty does essentially to some extent come down to spending money. Um, we know that when you spend that money, it's much more efficient over the long term to spend it on universal benefits. So Howard was suggesting a kind of universal minimum income perhaps. Um, at the moment we've still got a semi-universal child benefit. Um, and although it's often kind of very appealing to say, well, if we've got scarce money around, we should target it at the poor, over the long term all the international evidence suggests that universal systems are more effective. It's not just about redistribution, though. Um, we know that levels of employment are really, really important. Um, when it comes to looking at child poverty, it's mothers' employment that's particularly important here. Um, and we know that it matters who's employed. So when you try and look back at the 80s and think, well, what was going on? We had a huge increase in child poverty over that period. I think child poverty rates tripled. Um, one of the things was going on was that benefit rates were falling. But another thing was that who was working was changing. So at the top end of the income distribution, you had more and more two-earner couples. At the bottom end of the income distribution, you had no-earner couples. So we really need to think about levels of employment, who's working and when. When you look at kind of inter the international evidence, overall employment levels are actually less important in explaining levels of poverty. But more people being in work means it's much easier to pay for your redistributive spending. And actually, if you look at what was going on in the last decade, we had many more people going into work. So, for example, 14% more lone parents were in work now than 1997. And reducing spending on out-of-work benefits was enabling us to increase spending on children, for example. So we were getting those payoffs for the increased levels of employment. I've got one kind of caveat here in terms of our we know what works, and that's the rise in in-work poverty we've seen over the last decade or so. Um, not all of in-work poverty is actually about low wages. Um, some of it, again, is about low working hours. And actually, the low wage problem is something that happened in the 80s rather than in the last decade. So the proportion of those paid below two-thirds of the median wage has actually been constant since around the 1990s. So this is a long-term problem, not something that's happened recently. 
We do know that possibly housing costs are playing a big part in explaining that increase in in-work poverty. Um, Duncan's going to talk about housing costs, of course, and recent work by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation has really pointed to that as a critical factor. But I think no one yet quite, you know, I'm saying we sort of know what works, but in the area of low wages, I don't think we do yet. But I do think we can tackle the things where we do have a clear agenda, so that's housing costs, and again, we could look very clearly at childcare costs. And that kind of brings me on to my third reason why I think we've got some cause for optimism, and that's that policies that we need to tackle poverty could actually be popular. So some American researchers looked at kind of communication messages around poverty. This was in 2007, and it's obviously in America, so different welfare state, but I think they're quite relevant. So top of their list of don'ts in communicating about poverty was use the word poverty. <laughs> Basically, they say when we talk about poverty or worse, welfare, no matter what we say or how compelling our facts, it goes into a box that most people associate with negative stereotypes. Um, so they recommend that anti-poverty campaigners change the frame from sympathy for the poor to the economy and jobs, focus on solutions, not problems, don't make the story about an individual, and ensure that messages imply that it's not about them, but about all of us. I think when we actually look at who's poorer in the UK now, for once we've actually got policy and communications messages going in the same direction. So the largest single group of anyone in poverty is working couples, which is probably kind of who most people identify with. And as I was saying, we don't need targeted help for the poor, we need universal policies that help everybody. Um, whether that's universal childcare, um, better support in the housing market, or perhaps better support with essential costs when people are out of work. My final kind of reason to be cheerful, which is kind of attached to that, is that political attitudes aren't fixed. Um, as Zoe was saying, we've had a kind of increase in scepticism around social security, but that's, that's at the same time where we've had a decade or more's language about getting tough on scroungers, people talking about cracking down on benefit cheats, and I think some of that language was kind of around a desire to say, well, if we show that we're tackling the scroungers, then, you know, we'll make clear that everyone else is OK. But it's just kind of formed a kind of self-perpetuating circle where every time a politician has stood up and said, now we're going to tackle, tackle scrounging, people have just thought, oh, scrounging, that's what benefits is about. Um, I think often people on the other side are also at risk of um, kind of perpetuating this cycle. Um, I've written two myth busters on, on benefits in the last year. I'm not entirely sure that's the right approach. I think quite often every time we kind of go out and say, let's bust the myths about benefit claimants, people just hear us talk about benefit claimants. Um, and I think also there's a real danger about when we talk about a kind of anti-cuts message. If that's the only message people hear when we talk about poverty, I think, again, we're simply reinforcing the messages that this is about benefit claimants, it's about a different group of people, it's about a vulnerable group of people that people don't identify, and it's not about all of us. So I do think we need an alternative narrative, but as I said, I kind of think it's there for the taking. Um, we know we can have a better society, we know we can have a society where poverty doesn't restrict people's lives in the way it does still too often today, and we know that the policies that will make that happen are actually policies that will benefit all of us. Um, I think this is a really nice quote from Beveridge, just to finish with, where he said, um, freedom from want cannot be forced on a democracy or given to a democracy. It must be won by them. And I think the real challenge is to think about ways to win back that freedom. Well, thank you very much. Um, 
Our, uh, our next speaker is, is John Hendy, um, who's an Industrial Relations Law Specialist and a Queen's Council. He's also the Chair of the Institute um, of Employment Rights, which was one of the bodies that helped to found um, the centre that's hosting us tonight. And he's a visiting professor at the University College London. And he's going to talk about not one of the giant evils that um, Beveridge spoke about, but a sixth one, which the centre has decided ought to be added, namely disunity. No, I'm not. <laughs> Before you scream, hang the uh, lawyers, I want to talk about uh, an aspect of law that may not be familiar to uh, all of you. I want to talk about a particular fundamental human right and the contribution that it can make in achieving a social state, a civilised state. The human right that I've got in mind is the right to collective bargaining, supported by the right to strike. The references to Beveridge in the Second World War are relevant to the history of this particular human right. Just remind you that the International Labour Organisation was founded in 1919 after the First World War. It's a tripartite organisation consisting of the governments of the entire world employers' groups from the entire world and work, the workers' group, which re represents trade unions across the entire world as well. It's now an arm of the United Nations, and its function is to establish the labour standards for the globe. ILO Convention Number 87 is the most single most important convention that it laid down. ILO Convention 87 was ratified by the United Kingdom as the first country ever to ratify this important convention in 1949. ILO Convention No. 98 is the second most important, and that was uh, ratified in 1950. Almost every country in the world has ratified those two uh, conventions. And what do they protect? ILO Convention 87 protects the right to strike, and ILO Convention 98 protects the right to collective uh, bargaining. And the fundamental principles of those conventions have been reinforced in the decades since. Now, the timing of those conventions, establishing the right to strike and the right to collective bargaining, is, of course, uh, very important. First of all, of course, after the uh, Second World uh, War, the political elites of Europe feared the spread of communism. They need to reassure the resurgent left, which manifested in Britain in the 1945 Labour government, and the dominance of former resistance fighters across Western uh, Europe. But that doesn't explain why they focused on collective bargaining and the right to strike. The explanation for that is crucial to our discussion this evening. The explanation is that collective bargaining as a system of industrial relations, had been adopted across many countries of Western Europe, and even in the United States and in Canada, in the 1930s, as a central element of government economic policy in the fight against the Great Depression. And that was particularly true in the United Kingdom. During the 1930s, sectoral collective agreements were established, that's to say collective bargaining on an industry-wide uh, basis, establishing joint industrial councils. 
in those industries which didn't uh, w- were not well enough organised to support industrial industry-wide collective bargaining. Wages boards, and later called wages councils, were established. That was an invention, by the way, of Winston Churchill in 1909, but it, they were extended in the 1930s. Whitleyism in the civil service, the fair wages resolutions of the, of the House of Commons, which is a, a means of contract compliance. The, the guts of that is that anybody who... Con- who works on a government contract, who takes a government contract, has to abide by the relevant collective agreement for that trade or that industry or that locality. And by that means, collective uh, agreements or the extension of collective agreements was uh, uh, achieved. And there were other mechanisms by which parties that were not signatories to collective agreements were nevertheless bound by them. And that was... Government policy, really from the end of the 1920s right through until Thatcher came to power in 1979. And indeed, it was sector-wide collective bargaining that the United Kingdom in particular imposed in Western Germany after the war, which has played a vital role in its economic success. And the collective bargaining, of course, is is recognised as an effective means of increasing purchasing power and demand in the economy. It discourages undercutting on wage costs and it encourages competition on the basis of greater investment and in research uh, and development. Of course, from the trade union side, it's got other attractions as well. It represents justice. It represents a means by which the worker can redress to some extent the fundamental imbalance of power between the worker on the one side and the employer on the other. It's got a role in democracy because it gives the worker a voice in the conditions in which he or she works for so much of their working life. Uh, And uh, collective bargaining, uh, the right to collective bargaining, the right to strike was subsequently embedded in later international instruments. The the European Social Charter of 1961, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights of 1996. Even the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union in 2000, signed in Nice in 2000, includes the right to collective bargaining and the... Uh, right to strike. Although, of course, the European Union, through the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union, has fundamentally uh, undermined those rights in cases called Viking and Laval that we haven't got time to discuss. One other very, very important international legal treaty was established just after the war, and that is the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, the European Convention on Human Rights says nothing about the right to strike or the right to collective bargaining, but it does provide that everyone has the right to join a trade union for the protection of his or her uh, uh, interests. And that phrase was held by the European Court of Human Rights in 2008 to protect the right to collective bargaining, and there have been subsequent uh, cases which have upheld the uh, right 
to strike. So these rights are very, very important international uh, legal rights. They are fundamental human rights, but of course they are totally out of sync with the dominant economic ideology of neoliberalism. And for that reason, the uh, powers that be within Europe have been desperate to undermine those rights. This last year in the International <coughs> Labour Organization, uh, in a crucial committee, the employers group walked out on the basis that although the ILO had recognised the right to strike for 60 years, uh, there was no uh, place for a, 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 a right to strike within the structures of the ILO. The Troika that's going around uh, Europe has decreed the end of centralised collective bargaining uh, in Greece. And we see, in, of course, in our own country, Theresa May uh, attacking the European Convention on Human Rights and the Human Rights Act. And if anybody seriously believes that the basis of that attack is because she and the Tories don't like the idea of prisoners having the right to vote, they are living in another world. That is not what concerns the Tories. So, uh, the arguments for a return to uh, industry-wide collective bargaining, uh, in my view, are overwhelming. Good for the economy, crucial to the economy, crucial to the steps that my colleagues here uh, are advocating. Crucial for justice, crucial for democracy, and crucial to the... Uh, to the attack on inequality. Inequality we've seen rise in a meteoric way, both in this country, in Europe, uh, and in uh, North America. Countries that have high levels of collective bargaining have less inequality uh, than those uh, that don't. And there are other knock-on effects. We don't need any more the directive on agency workers and regulations to deal with posted workers. We, don't need, we wouldn't need to trouble with the difficult legal distinction between workers, employees, the fake self-employed and so on, because if we've got collective agreements that apply not just to uh, wages and hours and holidays, but to all the essential conditions of, of work then anybody doing that sort of work, whoever they're engaged by, whether uh, an employment agency or directly uh, by uh, an employer, will have those terms and conditions applied uh, to them. And the, this, this idea of sectoral collective bargaining, of course, has a knock-on for those who are not in work as well, because it's only when you've got a strong economy which ha gives a good tax yield that you can deal with the welfare uh, the other aspects of the, of the welfare state. I personally don't understand why the Labour Party is so reluctant to embrace collective uh, bargaining, not just for the reasons why it's a good thing, but also because our refusal to accept it makes Britain an international lawbreaker. And the ILO, the European S Committee on Social Rights, and the International Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights have all condemned the United Kingdom 
for its laws on strikes and on uh, collective bargaining. It's an intolerable situation, certainly for somebody like me who is a uh, barrister. And I don't think, in, in conclusion, that uh, proposals like the living uh, wage, attractive though they uh, are on the face of it, are a, a substitute for collective bargaining. If the living wage means collective bargaining, that's fine. But if it means a wage set by some body of the great and the good, all that will happen is that it becomes yet another minimum wage which becomes uh, effectively uh, worthless. So in conclusion, part of the restructuring and the establishment of a new social state, a civilised state, has got to be industry-wide collective bargaining. Well, thank you very much. Um, <coughs> now, our last uh, speaker, and, and you should be getting your thinking caps on because after this you need to pose questions uh, that are relevant to all our speakers, is, is Duncan Bowie. He's from the University of Westminster where he's a senior lecturer in planning, but he's also previously worked in many capacities uh, for the Mayor of London, for the Association of London Government, the Housing Corporation and various advising various boroughs of London. Um, he is, if I'm not mistaken, going to talk about squalor. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you, Chair. Um, yes, I, I got squalor because in the context of um, beverage, it's focusing on, on housing. Um, I'm gonna, my pamphlet, which was published last week on tackling squalor uh, under this program, um, is, is really in three parts, and I'm going to try and sort of stick to those three components. Firstly, the sort of theoretical critique of, of recent governments, then commenting on a recent developments, and then probably most importantly, a, an action plan for a future government. So my starting, the starting position is that, bluntly, that the housing policies, I would hardly call them a strategy, of the last five governments, and you can work out the timescale I'm referring to, have actually been fundamentally misguided because they've been focused on incentivising home ownership, in other words, focusing on incentivising individual capital gain rather than focusing on housing consumption and the effective occupation and use of housing and access to housing uh, by those in different housing needs and with different demands. Yeah. There have been fundamental economic impacts of this misguided policy, Firstly, housing has actually become one of the fundamental sources of inequality of wealth with the appreciation of housing values and therefore a fundamental element of increased uh, inequality in terms of access to a whole range of equalities, uh, uh, sorry, opportunities. Um, secondly, uh, it has actually fundamentally uh, diverted investment from uh, productive activity uh, and uh, also... Uh, as I think we're increasingly familiar with, the fetishisation of owner occupation was in fact the basis to a large extent uh, of the recession through the credit crunch, through the extent of subprime lending which was common in this country rather than just imported from America um, as uh, Gordon Brown and others uh, still seem to argue. The alternative principle of a housing policy should be focusing not just on meeting a range of needs but actually on the role of social housing as a long-term public investment because it involves asset appreciation for the public sector, effective occupation, and also assists local authority and public sector borrowing capacity. Therefore, in economic terms, it is actually a good thing. Governments over the years have increasingly switched subsidy from bricks and mortar 
to subsidy through housing benefit and some of the negative consequences of that and the crisis on housing benefit have already been touched on. We're now moving to a situation where there is likely to be no new investment grant from central government from 2015 and that's actually quoting a statement by the Homes and Communities Air Chair Sir Robert Napier earlier this week and, and he should know. Um, there is a fundamental question clearly as to whether an alternative uh, government, Labour or otherwise, would actually bring back a, a, a central government uh, housing investment in social rented provision. I understand Jack Drain, who's on the board of class, has read my pamphlet, and uh, it is a question that uh, I ask him on a number of occasions, and some of you may wish to take that opportunity elsewhere as well. Um, so what we've actually seen in terms of most recent government changes is actually the insecurity of the private rented sector, which has been effectively deregulated for some time, being introduced into the social housing sector. Other speakers have commented already on the extent of which benefit cuts and the new changes in, in benefit controls have hit vulnerable households, but they've also had a consequence, and we'll see even more of this in, in the next few months, of driving lower-income households out of central London and other higher-value areas. So we're actually moving into a position of actually fairly serious uh, increased social polarisation. What we have to remember is that the insecurity that we've introduced into the private renter sector and into the social housing sector has actually a fundamental negative consequence for lower-income households. In many ways, the security of their homes is actually one of the few securities they actually have in their lives, which are subject to other pressures. And to remove that is, is unbelievably negative and, shall I say, uh, cruel. The way in which the housing sector is responding to this, as we move into what's called the affordable rent regime, is effectively housing associations are actually moving up market, into market provision, now talking about moving into the private rented sector. <coughs> But what is called affordable rent, as some of you will know, is 80% of market rent and is clearly not affordable by the majority of not just lower income households but in higher value areas uh, by the uh, majority of middle income households including uh, young and some older professionals now. In fact, the use of the term affordable rent in this context is a serious abuse of the English language and should be challenged at every opportunity. What we also need to recognise is that social housing is not just for benefit dependents. I mean, you don't need to just go back to the 1940s or earlier to recognise that the whole purpose of uh, public housing was for a range of households, in fact, including lower-income working households. You could even get, go back to the philanthropic housing associations of the 1880s and 1890s. And we need to recognise that the problems of social housing have actually been caused by underinvestment and residualisation, not actually by social housing itself, and certainly not by the tenants, and the degree of scapegoating. And this is a, almost across the political spectrum, I have to say, again, is not been helpful and has been grossly unfair to people who are generally in quite difficult circumstances. So where are we in terms of a, an alternative strategy? And arguably this is something that alternative governments should have moved to a long, long time ago. We need to get back to a in massive investment programme in social housing in the form of social rented housing, not replicating some of the design errors of the 60s and 70s, to get back to genuine mixed communities, 
rather than focus on gentrifying it, the council estates is what the regeneration program of the last 20 years has been about. We actually need to focus on providing general affordable housing, including social rented housing, in the suburban owner-occupied areas. If we're talking about mixed and balanced communities, it works both ways. We have to stop privatising the public's housing provision, and we instead we need to socialise the private rented sector through taking ownership, for example, of street properties, taking back management and ownership of properties which are badly managed, and in some cases actually directly investing in it to get standards uh, up. We need local authority direct development. We need it on a, on a scale. Local authorities <coughs> have ownership of land. Uh, they don't have to seek profit returns. Uh, there's even a case for bringing back forms of direct control over building. For housing associations, we need to bring back a balanced mixed funding regime, like the regime that was actually operated in the 1990s, which actually used public grant and used private finance, but did not depend on uh, deals with, with private sector agencies or profitable re profit margin returns. You basically funded uh, your development out of the capital grant and the capitalised rental income from controlled rents. We also need to bring back this better regulation and effective accountability of housing associations as they're moving away from their original charitable and should we say public sector orientated objectives. Um, for renovation of the existing stock, something that is largely forgotten about in some of these debates on housing <coughs> investment, we need to use public assets and retain public ownership. A situation where we now rely on cross-subsidy from private developers generally leads to doubling density on high-density estates and smaller homes. It is not a satisfactory way forward to replace our ageing housing stock in the public sector. But most critically, we actually have to restore not just investment in the public sector, but basic security of tenure and reintroduce a mechanism of controlled rents in social housing. The focus of any strategy should be returning to public investment, public investment in the long term for public sector asset appreciation, for use of properties on a continuing basis for those in greatest housing need. We also need to have fundamental reforms on the taxation of property and land. I haven't got time to go into that, but I'm sure that will come up in, in questions. I wanted to finish off really by returning to, I think, what was Zoe's, one of Zoe's early comments, which is the general assumption that in a position of austerity we have no options, that spending is, is constrained. I would actually argue that for any government... Uh, austerity is to a large extent a matter of choice. A government can choose how to spend resources, it can actually choose how to raise resources. The debates I've been in recently about what an alternative government spending position would be have been all about shifting resources from one area to another, accepting an overall constraint. A progressive tax policy brings the state revenue that it can then reinvest for public purpose. And in any debate on housing provision, we have also to talk about tax policy. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, and thanks to all our speakers who've been um, excellent, both in the fullness of their presentations and in the briefness and succinctness in which they put them forward. Um, if our, if our um, policy makers could listen to these points, I think it would be helpful. 
We've got um, a good chunk of time now for questions, so what I'm going to do is take questions in groups of three. Um, and if you've got a specific person you want to address your question, do so, but don't feel obliged. And also to the panel, I think maybe not everybody every time, otherwise we're going to um, run out of time. So this woman at the front. Um, is there a microphone? Just wait for the microphone, because then our British politics blog can capture your every word. Thank you. Perhaps just say who you are. Yeah, I'm Carol Wilcox. I'm the Secretary of the Labour Land Campaign. I was extremely pleased to hear Howard talk about the... Uh, uh, possibility of uh, a land value tax, which is what we campaign for. Um, I'd just like to say that how very important it is, and I don't think, I want people to really appreciate this, that if we collected all land rent for public benefit, we could actually take 80% of people out of income tax, replace council tax, and business rates and stamp duty land tax. Uh, that would all be possible from that. And it would also have a big effect on the affordability of housing because it would bring down the price of houses to the price of the building. And so I would just, just like to pass that on. Okay, thank you. Um, and is, is there only you doing this? Or? Um, because this woman at the back and then the gentleman with the glasses. Oh, someone's got the microphone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how did you manage to get the microphone? <laughs> Off you go. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, I'm Adam. I'm a student from LSE. Um, it's kind of directed at Kate Ball, so um, Zoe. Um, talked about the, the Guardian article yesterday that said um, there's a general decline in um, generations that, are, uh, that find the welfare state appealing. Um, and I felt that kind of like, is it kind of too optimistic and too naive? I know you talked about um, the, how, how you can overcome that, but is it too, too optimistic and is, it too, um, is, the, is the task overwhelming <coughs> to, to change that trend and make a, a welfare state more appealing um, when since 1945 each generation has found it less, less so? Yeah. Okay, and then um, the, the woman at the back, and we'll come to you later. Um, well, you, you just wait, otherwise my authority will disintegrate in time. <laughs> Hi, Sarah Clifton, uh, Friends of Earth and Red Pepper. Thanks very much for really interesting um, contributions. I've got two questions. Um, my first one is to Zoe. Um, do you really think that the environment movement is to blame for the sense that there's no alternative to austerity? Um, uh, don't you think it's more of a kind of collective failure of both the environment and also the economic and social justice movements for actually elaborating what the alternatives are and making, I think, the point that Kate was making, that there are alternatives um, and that really they would benefit for everyone, not just benefits claimants. Um, and my second question was about um, collective bargaining. I totally um, strongly agree with the point about the importance of us <coughs> strengthening the right to collective bargaining. But I was wondering also, isn't there something we need to do around um, collective organisation, so the actual ability of workers to engage in collective bargaining? Um, there were some figures from the TUC last year that um, union membership in this country has halved in the last 30 years. So if people aren't actually members of unions, how would we actually going to engage in those collective bargaining processes to secure um, increased wages? I'm really interested in the um, views of all the panellists on that. Okay, so we've got land value taxes, 
changing generational attitudes, blame the Greens and collective bargaining. Um, Can I just take one on each of those and then if someone else wants to comment. So perhaps if Duncan could start with with land um, value. I'm happy to give you my list of tax changes (laughs) because I knew Carol was here when asked. Um, uh, Firstly, uh, we need actually progressive... I mean, the debate on mansion tax at the moment is quite interesting. Uh, uh, What we actually need is progressive council tax bans with higher tax rates, not just for... uh, very high-value properties, but also an adjustment for uh, occupation, not like the bedroom tax, but certainly uh, gross under-occupation of highly valuable properties should attract higher taxation because it would incentivise a more effective use of stock. Um, Secondly, uh, we should actually replace stamp duty by a tax on property. My own preference is actually for uh, a value appreciation tax based on disposal, but you can do that on an annualised basis as well. Uh, We certainly need a tax on undeveloped land and vacant property. Um, And uh, there are issues about uh, changing inheritance tax. Uh, One other element, which I think is actually quite important, is where there is private development, there should actually be public sector equity stakes. So the increase in value over time is paid back for public sector use rather than on the basis of a one-off negotiation under planning obligations at a point in time. Um, so I'm, I'm not a simple sub, a one-tax solution person on this. There are a range of property and uh, land taxes for use for different objectives, but I would argue for the combination of that whole package. Okay, um, and Kate, if you could speak to the point about generational changing attitudes... Sure. I mean, obviously, I don't think it's hopelessly optimistic to say we can have a change of attitudes, otherwise I just would give up and go home, <laughs> basically. But I think um, kind of the main reason we have for thinking that attitudes can change is that attitudes have changed in the direction that politicians have been pushing them. So certainly if you look over the last 10 years, you can look at people's changing attitudes to particularly why they think people shouldn't be claiming benefits. And you can see a big increase in people thinking that people are kind of committing fraud or that they're undeserving if you track the kind of political language and the newspaper coverage that has covered that political language over the time you see the same trends now obviously this isn't just one way you know there's a feedback effect going on politicians are responding to what they hear people saying about kind of people around them and then people kind of look at the world around them influenced by what they've read in the newspapers or what they've heard politicians say but I think there is the potential to change those attitudes and we are starting to see a kind of tiny bit of shift so actually one of the things that this year's British Social Attitudes reported was that um, in 2011 the proportion calling for an increase in taxation and spending rose for the first time in nine years Hmm. so these I think it's really important to not think that kind of attitudes are on a kind of inexorable, deterministic, kind of more individualistic um, slide. Actually, we do see those attitudes changing, and we see them changing in response to kind of political, political rhetoric, political activism. So I think there is things we can do. Thanks. Uh, I crudified your point because it wasn't blame the Greens, but could, do you want to speak um, to that? No, it was blame them all. I, can I just quickly do... I want to quickly do the young people as well, is that allowed? Go ahead, yeah. So there are three, there are three mm. really quick points about mm. the young people. One is Kate Pickett's point that the more inequality rises, the more people are suspicious of classes other than their own. And I think we're just, <coughs> we're just reaping the results of a very unequal society. So, um, the second is that there is, a, there is kind of massive misapprehension about who's on benefits and who isn't. So, you know, you can ask people. A lot of those 18 to 24-year-olds will be unemployed themselves, um, and they just won't understand that you're asking the question about them when they say most unemployed people are lazy. They mean, except me. 
Um, and thirdly, people often think, that they, they quote things that people, that 18 to 4 year olds say as though that attitude is fixed throughout their life and they'll, and in 20 years time when those people are 40, they will still think that. But actually, a period in your life when, you, when you're not a parent, when you're not a massive user of the NHS, when you don't use public services very much, when you're out of education, is the period in which you don't really see the point of it. And then as your tendrils go back into public service, then you gain sympathy for it. So I don't, I don't despair at all from... I don't, I don't look at young people now and think, um, oh, well, in 20 years' time, they, they, everybody will feel like that. Because, you know, I remember what I thought when I was 20, and it was... I mean, I was a lefty, but I didn't, I didn't understand why mothers had to take up the whole pavement. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, as far as blame... <laughs> As far as blame the Greens goes, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a philosophical point, this. Mm. The, uh, <laughs> I don't think the Greens have ever... I've, I would never blame any Green for promulgating austerity as an idea. I think it's a ridiculous idea, um, and I've never heard any sensible person saying it. And I don't think of... But I, do, I don't think it's any accident that Cameron aligned himself very closely with the Green movement, and with Friends of the Earth, for that matter, when he was trying to put together this whole Cameron package of the person with the good sense who could who could t- bring us back from the brink. You know, the language of austerity in politics has dovetailed with the language of scarcity in <coughs> environmental rhetoric, and the result is not simply a, con- a attempted fiscal contraction, but also this sense of that we're kind of at the end of days. And you find somebody who's saying that... Um, Recently, when you t- she was teaching a group of students from Utah, and they were talking as though the apocalypse was round the corner. <laughs> they weren't Mormons. They were talking as though they'd reached the end of the line. And and this is not this is not an environment, if I can double use the word unhelpfully, um, in which it's very easy to kind of muster the enthusiasm that I think we need to build new structures. But you know that doesn't mean I want to start. In, um, climate change denying. <laughs> I mean, that would be a departure. Anyway, okay, I'm finished. <laughs> oh, that's an important point. Um, John, did you want to speak to the point yeah. about collective voting? Yeah, yeah. Um, the question really was w- whether the six and a half million trade unionists in this country are, are sufficient to uh, restore uh, collective uh, bargaining. I, I think six and a half million trade unionists is, is, uh, is enough uh, to start that uh, fight and, and indeed I find it really quite amazing that there are still 6.5 million trade unionists in this country you've got to remember that's more than one trade unionist in every 10 human beings in these islands from babies to pensioners uh, and uh, given the, the media attack on trade unions the employer attack on trade unions and the p- politicians attack on uh, trade unions Given the movement of all the traditional industries out of the UK into third world countries, it's not that they were destroyed, they've just been moved. We still export, what is it, 50, we still import 56 million tonnes of coal each year, it's just that we don't dig it here, we dig it somewhere else. Given the, the, the uh, export of those tr- industries which were traditionally well organised, I think 6.5 million is, is still uh, quite uh, quite. Uh, good and, and sufficient for us to start our kickback. But there's a more important point here, and the point is this, that people only join trade unions in the belief 
that the trade union is going to either protect or improve the condition of their working lives in, in some way. And that means that they've got to believe that collective bargaining is a possibility. And what the, the really startling statistic is not the reduction in the number of members of trade unions from 12.5 million to 6.5 million, it's the reduction in collective bargaining coverage. When Thatcher came to power in 79, 82% of British workers had one or more terms uh, of their contract negotiate, uh, subject to a collective agreement. 82%. And that was the European average. Indeed, it is still around the European average for collective bargaining coverage. The rate now is 30%. Three out of ten workers have, have the protection of a collective agreement. The other seven out of ten have, are at the complete mercy of their employer in dictating terms and conditions. Now that landslide, that almost total, total collapse in collective bargaining is unique to the United Kingdom. E even in the United States, the decline has not been as steep as that. And it's completely out of kilter with the rest of, of uh, Europe, which partially explains why the European Court of Human Rights was insistent on the right to uh, 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 collective bargaining. And the question is why or how? What were the reasons for that dramatic decline in collective bargaining in, in Britain? Well, there are a whole number of reasons which you can imagine. Mass unemployment, traditional industries leaving and all the, all the rest of it. The most important one, in my view, is, the, is there are the restrictions on the right to strike. It's that that's made trade unions unable to produce successful collective uh, agreements. And the only unions that are putting on members now, adding members, are the fighting unions like RMT and PCS. They are the only <coughs> unions that are actually increasing their, their uh, uh, membership. So uh, I, 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 we, we've got to start where we are in any event. It's no good wishing <laughs> to start somewhere else. We are where we are. So um, I think we've got six and a half million uh, trade unionists, that's a, that's a good base to kick off from. Okay, now, of course, <laughs> now we have lots of questions. Um, I, I'm going to first take the gentleman with the glasses. Can I just see if anyone wants to speak on the topic of unemployment or idleness? Is, is that any, any of you? You, you? you sort of do. Okay, so maybe, <laughs> maybe this person can be next, um, and this woman here with the computer. So, starting with you. Uh, hi, my name's Doug Gilbert. Um, thanks very much to the panellists for what was really interesting. It's lovely to hear some great left-wing policies. Um, I'm actually going to completely change my question because um, we've heard a bit about sort of supply-side economics um, and collective bargaining, um, which is in a, a sense a sort of self-interest, uh, as you just described, but also about what is right and good in terms of the moral imperative to, do, to help people that are struggling. How do we reconcile those two things? Right. Um, and now... Okay. Michael Edwards, uh, University College. <clears throat> Quick comment. It's good to hear that uh, people in, in the panel and perhaps LSE more widely are 
not feeling the complete prisoners of public opinion and are aware that opinions are produced like everything else and could be changed. But the question I wanted to ask is this. What do the panel think about the chances of turning the tables on our enemies in terms of the, what is happening to the economy? That you know, we are the same people with the same skills and the same needs and the same productive capacities as we were 10 years ago, and we are being prevented from working and producing and meeting each other's needs. And the big strike that we had to have to worry about is the fact that capital is on strike. Investors are on strike. You know, they're the ones who are the problem. <coughs> they're refusing to invest. <coughs> they're refusing to employ people. They're refusing to let most, a lot of us work. You know, we really, I think we have to turn it around and you know, point the finger where it belongs as part of this refusal to accept the uh, narrative that's being offered to us. But I'd be glad to hear the panel's comments. Okay. And, um, yeah. Hi, I'm Alice Bell. I'm a science policy researcher at the University of Sussex, but I'm also climate change editor for the New Left Project, and that's kind of the hat I'm wearing to ask this question because it's on the Greens issue about blaming uh, them. <laughs> and I, I kind of agree that it, it, I think it's a real tension between green and red politics, and I also think that there's been going on for a long time, and there has been lots of other discussion about it. It's not a new debate, um, but it also really reflects the new ways which we have to think about the future, which is one of the reasons why I think there's different attitudes towards the way we think about technology and class and social state. And I, I do think there are problems around the discourse of climate change, which has been in partly through forms of... Um, of the environmental movement and I think that Zoe's right to say that there's no accident that Cameron um, utilised as well. I think it was World Wildlife Fund he went to play with the Huskies with um, and I think that there are ways in which that ties together um, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily environmental policy or environmentalist it's maybe the, the way we attach a lot of it to science and the idea of planetary boundaries and the way in which we explain climate change as a policy issue in terms of science and that's not to say that we should get rid of the science I think the science is very important um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm also a science blogger for the Guardian, no science is very important um, but if we see climate change as an issue through just the science then it's very easy to fall back on these boundaried ideas which can get in the way of, of a lot of left-wing ideas of there being lots of possibilities and if instead we see it as a matter of distribution then I think it can become hopeful and we can see hope and we can see the kind of mass activism around things like we saw today with EDF dropping their um, work against um, no, da no dash for gas and that for me that's where we see optimism in climate change because it's very difficult to see that and so I want this, this is a comment but it's also a question of where you see optimism in the world of in, in a world where we're thinking about climate change and if you agree with me that that's the only place we can see it is by seeing this question, not as a scientific one of, you know, looking, though we should still keep measuring how much things are melting, but, um, but looking at the policies in terms of the political activism and how we can have political change. Okay, so these are a bit harder to summarise. Something about moral imperatives, um, preventing us from working for each other and back to the Greens. Um, I don't want to keep taking the same people, but I do think you started with moral imperatives, Zoe, um, so if you'd like to... I think it was more like, how do we reconcile the self-interest we need to collect to bargain effectively with the altruism we need to have a state? Is that right? Yeah. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that it's like equality. If you, whenever you, The arguments against equality are always, well, I don't want perfect equality now. What would perfect equality now look like? And actually, that's not what... You want you don't. We're not arguing for a perfect 
equilibrium in which everybody knows exactly how self-interested to be in their own wage negotiations and exactly how altruistic to be in their welfare in their conception of a welfare state you know those it's it's more a question of moving in the right direction on both things than poising yourself perfectly on on the matter if you see what i mean that's that really lame answer <laughs> Okay, yeah, so for our second question, do you want to... Yeah, I mean, I'm going to try and kind of reply to the first two questions um, in one, because I think they Mm -hmm. raised the same kind of issues, just in slightly different ways. Mm. I mean, I think the point that, can we now turn the tables on the the coalition government, because their economic strategies fail, I mean, and and capitalism more widely seems to be failing. I I think it's pretty clear that the coalition government um, is trying to run a system that just isn't working at the moment, except for the super rich. It's still delivering for the kind of top 1 or 0.1%. And there's an interesting issue about whether when George Osborne and Cameron and Danny Alexander, the rest of it, if, when they came in, did they really believe it would be as simple as they put out in the June 2010 emergency budget? You know, just cut things and then within five years you've got growth of 3%. Mm-hmm. They may have believed that, and I think they probably did believe that at least to an extent, or at least convinced themselves of that. The alternative idea is this was all kind of a ruse um, and then they could blame Labour even more when things kind of went wrong. But I think they actually have been surprised how difficult it's been to get growth going again. And I think this does open up a new a new space for the, the left that wasn't there in the 80s. Because in the 80s the Thatcher government uh, argument the Tory argument was always that you know Labour care but they're totally incompetent right? Um, whereas now we see that the coalition government have economically been completely incompetent, at least the outcomes in the economy seem to show that they've been completely com- com- incompetent. So they don't have the same sort of like, you know, wildfire growth that helped Thatcher win the 83 and 87 elections to kind of fall back on. So they're going to have to fall back on a different strategy to say, you know, we're not doing well, but Ed Balls would do even worse. And that might work, but it's not such a surefire banker as they had in sort of 19. 19- 87. And so I think now the kind of policies that we've been talking about on the panel, um, we can make the argument that A, they would help the economy function more effectively, but they would also be more just. And so the social justice case and the economic efficiency case line up more clearly because at the moment the coalition isn't, de- isn't delivering either on social justice or economic efficiency. So it's failing on both counts. So that makes it a little bit easier for the left to make the counter-argument that we can succeed on both counts. Hmm. Um, did you want to say something about... I was going to say something about the kind of um, self-interest or altruism, basically, po- point, um, which is that kind of one of the beauties of Beveridge's system is that it's an insurance system. It's meant to be a self-interest system. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to be about paying something now so that when you experience unemployment or when you become sick, or when you have a child, the system pays out for you. And I think one of the ways we need to talk about the system again is just to remind people that that's what it does. Um, I had the really nice phrase, I think it was um, from the comedian Richard Herring, saying that disabled people describe other people as the not yet disabled. Um, We all will be at some point in our lives, probably. And I think that's another way of kind of thinking about, you know, there isn't a conflict in terms of those two interests. The system is meant to kind of deliver both of them. Um, really quickly on the third question, which um, made me feel more optimistic <laughs> in any rate, um, I think certainly thinking about kind of my bit of work, which is particularly thinking about child poverty, 
Um, there's a really kind of obvious kind of line up with some of the kind of green agenda where we're saying, what do we want children's futures to be like? And the other obvious kind of thing affecting that is going to be, well, you know, what is the kind of environment in the whatever sense of the word you want that they're going to be growing up in? And I think what you were saying about thinking about, well, how do we want to distribute all the resources that children will be kind of experiencing in the future is perhaps a way into kind of, you know, don't want to say squaring the circle, but kind of getting some of those debates to look in the same direction. Okay, um, are there any other... I'm going to come to you in a minute on Greens, but just is there anyone else that wants to speak to any of these questions? You're right. Um, I understood the, the original point you made about Greens to be at a more philosophical level. I mean, in a sense, all leftists for 200 years have believed that it's possible for us to act collectively to improve the human condition. And, and at a deep level, what environmentalists say is that human reason is bounded, there's a limit to what we can know, and that what we try to do often goes wrong, negative unintended consequences of human action. And that, that can be disabling. So I think the point you're making is a serious one, and at I do also see that there's alliances and, and many of the things that Greens want involve collective action itself, so it's somewhat paradoxical. But if you just want to come back to that point... I mean, I, I suppose I'm think, looking at it from a pragmatic point of view. I see the alliance between the left and Greens as being uh, in um, collective finance, you know, because when you look at... When you look at the... When you look, well, I mean, I'm thinking of Germany. I'm thinking in particular of that German mayor with his... With his um, with his little grid in which everybody collectively paid into it and now all their power comes from the grid and he's and they want to make Berlin the first sustainable city. And that seems to me to answer a sustainability question but also a finance question and a collective action question. And I think increasingly the scarcity can be used to break the verities of finance which are at the moment crushing us you know as you say the 0.01% are unaffected by our downturn we are crushed at the moment by a sense that we can only apply to finance we can only invest if finance invests for us we can only we can only get jobs if they decide to give us jobs we can only create infrastructure etc etc and Actually, the energy conversation really turns that around, and I think it's you know the crowdsourcing stuff is huge. I think it's that it's a real cause for um, optimism. But you know, in order for the left and the greens to come together, they do both have to be coming from an optimistic standpoint. And I think it's a very difficult thing to pull off optimism in kind of in the environment conversation. Okay, let's take another round of questions. Um, can I have um, the gentleman with the purple sweater and the blonde hair? The, you, yeah. And, and then the woman at the back, and then this woman at the front. Hi, uh, my name is Leo Watkins. Um, the question I have, uh, well, to start with, I wanted to just point out uh, something someone said earlier about how we should do something because it's not just going to be good for growth, but it's also fair too, right? And there's a problem in public debate uh, where those things have become separated. Uh, and what's happened is, in my view anyway, uh, the Tories are very effective at saying, well, we'd love to do that. We agree it would be nice, but it just wouldn't help growth. It would, it would doom us to being uncompetitive, and in the never-ending global race, we'll lose out. And of course, if that race is never-ending, then you never get to stop and start taking care of social justice, Right. But the point is that there's an economy fetishism going on which says all kinds of economic growth are equal, i.e. unsustainable and sustainable, 
in terms of for the environment, uh, but also in terms of distribution. And everything is focused entirely on getting that, you know, percentage, that headline percentage figure moving. And the role for the moral evaluation, in my view anyway, is to be able, is that we can say not all kinds of growth are created equal. But doing that does mean having to bite the bullet of saying we may in some situations be prepared to accept lower growth if that means more growth for the people at the bottom. Now, if we're not prepared to say that, then we're going to lose. Right. And that's, I mean, surely that's just something that has to be faced up to. So ways of dealing with that, it would be, it would be nice to hear maybe some ideas about that. Um, the other thing which is kind of related is that to try and reconcile this, you know, as it were, green-red division. There's obviously a sense in which they are in tension about pessimism and idealism or whatever. But, um, again, you get arguments from the right about, well, we can't have green taxes because it will hold back economic growth. Um, and you can say, well, that's true. It will hold back the economic growth that occurs now. But what about the economic growth for future generations who are left with a wrecked environment? So, in a sense, what we're saying is we're excluding the interests of people not yet born, and those interests need to be weighed up when we think about equality. Um, and the not yet born are arguably the most vulnerable group in society, right? <laughs> well, they are. I mean, and, 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 and to, finally, uh, the, the key thing is that people do accept the case about the environment and the need to do something. Uh, when you phrase it in terms of their children uh, and you use affective... Um, kind of please uh, and I, I think that that's something that we've maybe neglected a bit and which you are inevitably going to neglect if you talk entirely in terms of economic benefit Okay yeah. Hi, um, my name's Kate Webb and I'm just sort of picking up the point about self-interest with a question for Duncan specifically um, I agreed with your sort of shopping list of what we need to um, cultivate investment in social housing, but I noticed that you ended with for those in the greatest housing need. Um, and this isn't a, a question I necessarily have an answer to push on, but I think it's a question we need to put out there of given what we know about the sort of residualization of social housing and what we've heard about the appeal of universalism, whether in order to get sort of public consent and political will for that investment we actually need to move away from sort of allocating social housing for those in the greatest need and prioritise perhaps those in more moderate need so they can feel that they're going to be the sort of the first wave of beneficiaries. Thank you. And have we got a microphone down here, please? Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. hi. I'm Amina Ali, I'm the Chair of Hamlet CLP and uh, Somali Friends for Labour. Um, I'm really interested in the whole question of ethnicity and looking at, for example, Somali community, which I do a lot of work with, especially now with the universal credit and the bedroom tax. These are communities that are hit quite hardest, but if you look at some of the communities who are on welfare benefit, they're the kind of community that are targeted by the media as welfare scroungers. And it's a division that people, especially in the media, are using to divide the low wages, the people who earn low wages, along ethnic lines of these immigrants have come in and they're on benefits and they're the scroungers. And with the question of immigration that's important now in the media is coming on about immigration more groups that might be coming into this country, I'm interested in the whole idea of division at the bottom um, mm -hmm. in terms of poverty and I'd like to see what the panel say about that, especially in terms of housing and welfare benefit and jobs as well. I think it's very important to know that certain groups have a very different way of 
of being um, to dealing with poverty and different effects of poverty and inequality on certain groups in society. Thank you very much. So this time we've got the juxtaposition of growth and fairness with an extra spin on intergenerational justice. We've got a question about self-interest and housing, and we've got a question about ethnicity and um, benefits and poverty. So, um, Howard, would you like to start? Um, yeah, with the first sure. Question? Um, on the first question, I mean, I think you make a really, really important, important point, and one of the coalition strategies, not the only coalition strategy but one of the strategies and certainly the strategy favoured by the Tory right and people like Liam Fox and some of the 2010 intake, they seem to get more right wing each time um, is to say we can't afford this welfare state nonsense, we need to be kind of uh, Singapore or something you know, you, you, you pick a kind of South East uh, Asian country, often, often um, not at misunderstanding what's actually going on in those countries, but you just say, you know, we need to be like one of the kind of so-called tiger economies, and we need uh, we need to get rid of the entire welfare safety net uh, so that we can kind of compete with whoever's offering the lowest wages uh, this decade or, or whatever. Um, and that means that we can't do any of this kind of social stuff. Uh, we just got to kind of make it a good, make Britain a good place to compete. And there has been some of that going on, particularly on stuff like corporate tax, where the corporate corporation tax system now has more holes in it than a Swiss cheese, you know, and uh, uh, multinational corporations are paying about 5% on their remitted profits from abroad. If that, in some cases, they're paying nothing at all. Um, I think what you have to do there is say, look, what is all this in aid of? We've been told that the measures that have been, laid, that have been put in place so far will deliver growth. They haven't delivered growth. You know, they've delivered increased inequality without growth and they're also and, and, and the the coalition's actions on uh, on the environment uh, uh, you know um, meaning that we're not going to make any kind of carbon targets that we've set for ourselves and um, we're kind of heading for you know all the scientific evidence suggests that we're heading towards disaster on the environment even as things stand and if, if, if we have more deregulation it's going to get even worse. I think the environment. I think it's it's hard to make the environmental debate because you're talking about something that will be be happening you know, fairly soon, but probably not. We probably won't feel the big effects for a couple of decades. So it is it is difficult because um, people. You know, someone like Liam Fox is talking about trying to put money in people's pockets now. So you're talking about you know short term benefits versus long term uh, long term costs. Um, but I think I think what you have to do really is say look you know. The scientific evidence at the moment suggests that unlimited growth is impossible because we're going to hit environmental constraints. Therefore, we've got to do something else. We can't just go on being neoliberal because we know we're going to run into an environmental brick wall. So that actually, I think, opens the space for an alternative approach. But, of course, it then puts the onus on us to say, what do we want to do instead in terms of different approaches to environmental regulation and economic management? So it's not easy, but, I mean... Um, I'm a trustee at New Economics Foundation, and a lot of the work they're doing is trying to look at that, for example. So, work is going on. Thank you. Um, Duncan, would you like to take the second one? Uh, it's probably the most difficult question of them all. I mean, the, the, from a housing point of view, I mean, the, the real difficulty is so long as you have undersupply of housing that's in demand by people who can't access the market, you have to have sort of some form of rationing. And for the last 20 or 30 years, we've been going through debates over different forms of rationing. Um, Nick Rainsford, when he was uh, housing minister, introduced choice-based lettings, 
which was very limited choice because it, there was no increased supply. So what you basically had is the most desperate people having to choose the worst properties because it was the only way they'd get rehoused quickly. Um, and we have to be quite careful. I mean, some of the current debates are about local residents first. Well, that is seriously discriminatory against people who haven't actually got residence in the areas the housing is supplied. People employment first, which was Caroline Flint's bright idea at one stage when she was a, a Labour housing minister. Um, current government is favouring people who served in Afghanistan or in the forces get the priority. You get into debates about who is more worthy than others. And I think, you know, the, the original point-based system where there was a sort of national... Very technically, it was that certain households got priority on the uh, on certain absolute needs, like having a number of children, <coughs> degrees of overcrowding, or, or being disabled. You have to actually prioritise those households. I've had discussions with, a, you know, very recently with a chair of housing in a progressive Labour borough, who's actually taking the position that he can get local residents to support new homes near them, uh, only if they get housed first. The difficulty if you get into that situation, you have established kind of two-tier systems, which basically mean the only way you get a decent house is being a long-term resident or actually being a council tenant for a long time and somebody who's a new arrival to the area, maybe from just across the, the street in another borough, actually gets what's left. Um, and, and it's really difficult. And I think if you work on the basis of self-interest in the way that the sort of government's localism agenda is where basically people can choose what they want for themselves, but excluding the needs of other people and the impact of their decisions on other people, you're actually going to have a situation where the most vulnerable are disadvantaged. And therefore, I don't think we can work purely on the basis of altruism. I think policies which um, sacrifice objectives and compromise too much to individual self-interest and lack of altruism are also problematic as well which is why occasionally you have to take the view that the government's there to make decisions which are driven on the basis of politics and clear policy objectives, which some people aren't going to be happy with. And if people don't want housing next to them because it's you know, going to take the values of their properties down or they don't get housed first, tough. There are other decisions that have to be made. Okay. Uh, would you like to have a go at the third I mean, question? I think it actually links really well to what Duncan was just saying, basically, because I think you get these kind of divide and rule tactics in conditions of scarcity. So, you know, a lot of the kind of talk you get around kind of problems of immigration is actually talking about problems of housing shortage. It's, you know, why have those people got a house when I haven't? Well, you know, that's actually not about immigration. That's not about race. That's about I'm worried that I can't get secure housing. If you think about kind of problems of low wages as well, there's an issue where... You know, we've had this kind of wage stagnation, um, and that's where people are thinking, why is this going on? Is it, you know, because, I don't know, we've had immigration from Eastern Europe. And I think, kind of, when we kind of, it's one of those things where you kind of think, well, okay, how can we tackle, if we start thinking, how can we tackle the problem of um, people being differentiated because of, you know, their uh, immigration status or not, or because of their ethnicity or because of their gender or their disability status, I think we need to go back and say, well, why is this a problem, and start talking about that. So you take the example of the benefit cap, for example. Um, we know that the benefit cap, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, um, a maximum cap on the amount of out-of-work benefits you can claim of £500 a week, which is pretty devastating if you're paying housing, 
if you're paying rent in London, is going to have a really disproportionate impact on minority ethnic families. Um, I'm not sure if that's you know should be our top message when we're campaigning against it. I think we should be saying rents in London are too high. This policy is going to affect anybody who is you know unfortunate enough to have found themselves unemployed at a time when housing costs in London are rising. And I think yeah, the way to kind of tackle those kind of divide and rule tactics is to say what's actually the problem here and what can we do about that. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm going to move to another set of questions. You'd like, yes, please. Can, can, I, can yes. I just join in on the, the, yeah. that last question about l low wages and divide, divide and rule at, at, at the bottom? I mean, this is this is a particular uh, area where collective bargaining can help because if you <coughs> set uh, minimum standards across a, a industry or all, or all industries, then then you you can do a lot. Not completely exclude low, low wages but you can do a lot to uh, protect uh, wages so if you take one, one of the issues at, at present is that the Tories are proposing to abolish the last of the wages councils the agricultural uh, wages councils which, are, which I think applies to about 200,000 workers in this country uh, and that is a form of collective bargaining it's got a third party element within it but it's a form of collective bargaining but it does set wage rates right, right across in industry. And, of course, it, it deals with that problem of, of uh, in, um, in the agricultural industry. It's not Malian workers generally, but Eastern European workers come uh, to do fruit picking and, and so forth. And the, the attempt is, of course, to lower their wages and working in appalling conditions and so forth, sleeping on the job, etc., etc. Uh, and the Wages Council not entirely successful, but is at least a bastion to protect the ter terms and conditions of, of that kind. And, and one of the things about uh, having uh, fixed collective agreements is, is that it, it, uh, it, it's a, a protection against racism uh, as well, because then you simply say, look, we, we don't care if they're Latvian workers or Malian workers or East European workers, whatever they are, if they want to come and do the job so long as they work on the agreed terms and conditions, that's fine. And that's what happened, you remember, at a dispute in East Lindsay Power Station a couple of years ago. That was the solution that was ultimately reached that the, the unions, and the, well, it was really the workers with the assistance of the unions in the background because they weren't allowed to call a strike because of the restrictions and so forth, said, right, we'll, we'll do a deal here. We'll have an agreement. This is the agreement. We don't care whether they're Italians or British or wherever they come from. These are the terms they're going to work on. So collective bargaining's got a lot, a lot to uh, offer in terms of protecting against racism and low wages. Okay, well, evidently we don't have a whole... We don't have as much time as I thought we had. Um, I'm not quite sure what to do. Uh, on the one hand I'm supposed to stop you all in one minute and on the other hand I'm supposed to allow one or two more questions. Um, so if we could have two super quick questions, maybe this gentleman here who's been wanting to speak for some time and then uh, that woman with her hand up at the back. But if you could just make it super quick and we'll just take one or two responses. Alan Spence, Cooperative Party. One of the problems with the trade union movement, of course, is that the leadership have run out of ideas because one of the things which we should be doing is to look at the 
the factories which are being gone, gone overseas, why couldn't they have tried to get them turned into cooperatives before they left this country? They have lost their vision. At one time, the trade union movement used to have the vision, and this was written to some of their rules, that the workers had the, the perspective of taking over the production facilities besides the cooperative movement of retail, also productions. But the trade union movement leadership have offered absolutely no examples of how this could be done, in, particularly in relation to the uh, mining industry. It took the Tower Colliery to become a cooperative to show that a mine could be taken over by the workers, could be run successfully, and only the fact that they run out of coal prevented them from carrying on. So if the cooperative movement began to work with the uh, trade union movement in establishing cooperatives, I think we would see some su substantial progress because in this way it could be in a sense a Trojan force into the difficulties that we have in, re in bringing our industries back into life again. Thank you. Hi, I'm Camilla from UKYCC, UK Youth Climate Coalition and E3G. Um, really quick question, I promise. Uh, my question is that we've talked about a lot of opportunities for change. We've also talked about how these things need to be framed and messaged and positively. But what I want to know from you guys, big challenge, is how do we create that culture that we need to make those changes reality? Okay, now we're in real trouble because everyone <laughs> talks about all these things. And we've got cooperation we've got culture for change. Um, does anyone want to take the cooperation point? Great. Yeah, just, just very, I, I, I think you do it disservice to the new generation of uh, leaders within the trade union movement. I, I say that with Steve Hart from Unite here. I mean, Unite is, is, is uh, thinking out of the box. I think they are uh, Im impressive, the, the new ideas that they have, working with the community and uh, uh, not simply sticking to the old, old ideas. I'm totally in favour of uh, cooperatives, of course, and if you look at the uh, Mondragon uh, cooperative in, in Spain, entirely supported by the trade union movement, the most successful cooperative in the world, and it's an example of what can be done. It employs tens of thousands of, of workers. It's one of the most productive uh, enterprises in Europe, uh, and uh, there is definitely a lot to be learned from that. Thank you. And perhaps, um, if the other panellists don't mind, I'll just turn to Zoe. She didn't ever go in the last uh, round. Do you have a... Enthusiast. Yeah. No, I don't have anything on cooperatives. So no, on, 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 on the, the culture, culture of change. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I, th I think it comes back mm. to this point that we're the same people mm. with the same needs and the same productive capacities that we were 10 years ago, except better. You know, we are an amazing... When you look at figures like 93% of new housing benefit claimants are in work, that's a huge cohort of people who are working, even though it doesn't pay their rent. You know, we're an incredibly industrious moral country with amazing universities and amazing technologies and you know short of habit short of discovering the north sea again i don't see how we could be better um and that's the message i think we should get across well listen i, I just want to try and summarize by saying i think we've heard a, a significant number of important policy ideas but uh, around it all was a theme about the need for optimism and, and i think there's a number of things that stand out from what we've heard one is that, you know, it matters what you do even when your allies are in opposition. It matters because you can create policies for them in government. But more than that, it matters because you can shape the preferences of people, a point which was highlighted by Kate. 
The other thing I think we should just put on the table before we leave is to get a bit of historical perspective on the current debate. Uh, Zoe said at the beginning that the, there's no money, that's the end of it. <laughs> now, we need to remember that in 1945, the proportion of GDP that was held of national debt was 240%. 240% of GDP. At the time David Cameron came to power, it was 70%. After 1945, in the following two decades, they paid down the debt and they built the welfare state. So here we have a panel who are trying to look for a different approach. Of course you have to pay down the debt, but you could build a social state at the same time. So I'd ask you to join me in thanking our panellists for contributing. To the-